Father, we come before you in thanksgiving. Uh, we we know we've been asked to come boldly. That for us sometimes seems to be a challenge. But of course, if we're resting fully in the sufficiency of your grace, there's no issue. We we know that nothing stands between us and you. And the shed blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, has accomplished all of that for us. And we are enshrouded and... and uh, and uh, have the very righteousness of Christ uh, accounted to us. So, Father, what a blessing it is to know the uh, riches of the glories of your grace. Thanks for gathering us this morning in the light and truth of that. We thank you for all things, for working together, everything for our good. And uh, far more because uh, we've been... uh, ushered into the glorious salvation that others that had gone before did not know. Uh, The Jews down through the many centuries that they were uh, blessed so directly by you, they did not know these blessings that we enjoy today. So, Father, they were looking forward and in faith, many of them, and uh, and then ultimately we're set aside and we're studying that this morning, Father. So I, I pray that you would bless us in that endeavor and give us understanding from your word. But Father, we know you have your ways and you have your ability uh, to accomplish your purpose independently of us. And we will rejoice to hear how you've worked. Father, I... Uh, I commit our nation and our leaders to you, especially our president and those that advise him because they guide and lead the nation. Uh, There are so many that have turned aside, Father, and considering the culture of death that now uh, seems to be even increasing in its uh, dominance in this country with our people, the hearts are darkened of of so many of our our people. Father, I, I pray that many would be saved in these last dark days. We pray that the circumstances of life uh, might be even used in that regard. We we pray for uh, our nation that's on the verge of godless, even communism, we could call it. That's simply clearly what many are promoting, though they wouldn't call it that. But, uh, Father, I just pray that you would guide and lead our our nation. May our president have great wisdom and those that advise him. And may any and all in every level of government to stand for truth and justice, may they be encouraged. May they be bold. May they not be silenced, though the enemy seems to be so uh, great and so widespread in in his effect. I pray, Father, for courage for each one of us, and boldness to share that which we know of you and our precious Savior. I pray, Father, for our outreach, that it would be effective and they would use it to bring some to yourself in these days. Father, as we look into your your word, uh, bless us now as we look into your word, Father, and uh, open our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. All right, well, today is part two of a three-part series on All Israel Shall Be Saved. Of course, I've taken that statement out of Romans chapter 11 in the uh, closing part of that, uh, that section there. Paul says that, and... Let me just tell you what the outline is today. Our outline today will be focusing entirely on the olive tree analogy that's found in verses 11 through 24. Uh, The olive tree, an overview, that's in uh, verses 11 through 14. Then the olive tree, a summary of its meaning, that's in verses 15 through 18 of Romans 11. Then the olive tree, its dispensational significance, that's in verses 19 through 24 
And then finally, the olive tree and exhortation and exhortation. And that's really the entire section, verses 11 through 24. In our last fellowship, we left behind our recent teachings on the dispensation of the grace of God and specifically the rapture or catching up of the church, which is his body. It's a very critical and important teaching that has been abandoned by many groups today that once held to it. There's a resurgence of anti-dispensational teaching uh, today in the different groups. And uh, I think it's it's uh, to be expected, really. Uh, many are moving away from literal translations to paraphrases or 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 uh, what's not even a paraphrase, even worse than that. Uh, in the case of some of them, like the message, for example, but as they do that, they, they of course, uh, can no longer grasp on to the, uh, the teaching of God. And uh, so it's to be expected that there will be a uh, <clears throat> withdrawal from teachings that once were held firm in some groups concerning the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Another thing that's happened is uh, this emergent church movement that seeks to sort of rekindle life of some kind in the old dead churches. Well, the way it does that is by lowering the standard to the bottom, right, just to increase the numbers. Uh, and when they do that, they, they have to be able to reach out to all, so they do not want to hold or teach anything that isn't generally agreed upon by all. Unfortunately, that even brings unbelievers into the group because the gospel itself is no longer uh, being preached or taught, and grace is overshadowed by religious uh, systems. So that's what's happening in our current day. But um, here uh, we'd like to hold to this truth that Paul reveals. And in Romans chapters 9 through 11, where we continue today, uh, we see revealed, when he gets to the end there of chapter 11, he, he gets to what he calls the revelation of the mystery of lawlessness, okay? The mystery of iniquity, uh, it's called in the King James. Mystery, of course, means the secret, that which was not revealed before. It couldn't be, because God was dealing with Israel, and he raised up a special apostle to bring forth that teaching. And uh, what Paul uh, reveals there is the mystery. Uh, mystery of lawlessness is um, actually revealed in Second Thessalonians as well. We spent time there last time. And uh, there, uh, if you will recall, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses six and seven. I I uh, I spent some time trying to uh, help us understand that section because the words are not so easy to comprehend as we find them even in the King James, right? Because we find the word "let" there, and just reading verses six and seven. Now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. So the word let uh, has uh, radically changed in its meaning uh, from what it was in 1611. I mean, that's 400 and... <laughs> mm. What? <laughs> Some years ago, <laughs> um, 408 <laughs> years ago, um, if I calculated it right. Well, that's a pretty long time. <clears throat> Words change their meanings, and this word let changed its meaning. And you can see that if you just look in Isaiah 43, 13, where the word has an entire reverse uh, <laughs> 
180 degree opposite meaning than, than it seems to here in, uh, in Second Thessalonians 2. Actually, the same meaning. It's just that uh, we read it incorrectly, uh, perhaps. So if you just substitute for let the word withhold, withhold, as he does, as it is correctly translated a little bit earlier there, then you'll understand what it means a little bit better. Uh, he that withholds will withhold <clears throat> until he's taken out of the way. Well, there's another problem, too, which is that the word he implies personality, right? That's a personal pronoun. <laughs> but in the Greek language underlying those verses, it, it's it's only in that first case that there is a personal pronoun. After that, there, there are none. Okay, so uh, you could more accurately translate this, and now you know what withholdeth, that what withholdeth, okay, not he that withholdeth, but what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only that which withholds will continue to withhold until it is taken out of the way. That would be a very uh, accurate translation. Okay, so as I pointed out, th this is all about um, the rapture of the church, just as he has been uh, teaching earlier there. So it's only when the rapture has occurred that uh, Satan is then able to be uh, unbound because it is the church, the body of Christ, that is the restrainer. Uh, and you may think we don't have power, but that's not true at all. Uh, apart from the true church uh, in the world, uh, lawlessness would abound, and it will uh, as soon as we are taken out. Now, last time we quickly looked through uh, chapters 9 through 11, at least uh, uh, as much as we could there, just to see what the background and context was in the teaching uh, there leading up to the verses we want to look at today in chapter 11. And what we saw in Romans 9 was that God successively applies this principle that he calls election. He successively applies it uh, in in the uh, in the Jewish uh, heritage, starting with Abraham and going then down uh, to the ultimately to the nation of Israel. Right. So uh, God successively applies this principle called election there in chapter nine verse 11 he, and he, he's speaking specifically there about the the two children right uh Isaac and um Esau uh, it says in verse 11 the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him that calleth so uh, what what that teaches is that there's a successive uh, limiting uh, of the uh, the whole promise concerning the seed of the woman. And uh, that's been our focus here uh, as we've studied the long war against God from the beginning. We started out the first day of it looking at the promise in Genesis 3.15 concerning the seed of the woman, because according to prophecy, all redemptive hope lies in the coming of that seed, of course, who is Israel's Messiah and our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So there's a successive limitation as to who the uh, promise will apply to. And there's more and more revelation given, uh, first Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and so forth, uh, and then finally Moses. And eventually, you know, God does have a chosen nation, and that is the nation of Israel. But uh, others are left out along the way, like uh, looking at the at this situation here in Romans 9, Esau and his descendants are left out. They're not included in the promise given to and through uh, Abraham and then Isaac, right? It says, in Isaac shall 
by seed be called. Okay? So the others are not counted. Well, Paul goes on in chapter uh, 9 at the at the end of it to uh, change the subject a little bit from election to another principle, and that is the principle of faith. Okay? So he changes the subject from election and the promises over to faith as opposed to works. That's right near the end of chapter 9, and that's where he gives the illustration of the potter and the clay. And uh, I'll just read uh, one or two verses there in Romans chapter 9. The Gentiles, which followed not after, this is verse 30, after righteousness, the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There, there uh, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 18 and chapter 28. So God raised up a savior for Israel, even their own Messiah, but they were seeking righteousness according to the terms of the law and not according to faith, so they stumbled over uh, their own Messiah in un belief. In chapter 10, Paul continues that. I think the chapter division between 9 and 10 is in the wrong place, therefore, because uh, chapter 10 is just a continuation of those last few verses in Romans 9. Okay, And there again, and I'll just read one verse, they, meaning Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness has have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth so the very righteousness of God is required for salvation not a legal obedience of works Uh, but the Jews miss that by trying to establish their own righteousness and what does Satan do but pervert the proper teaching of uh, the word of God, always adding works. He will not necessarily exclude faith, but he always wants to add works. And by doing that, he compromises and and corrupts the very uh, content of faith that is required for salvation. So salvation is not by faith plus works. Uh, Paul makes that a major subject in Romans and also in Galatians. Okay, um, then in chapter 11, the first few verses uh, say, and this is verse 1, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. And then skipping down to verse 5, even at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. <laughs> what well, could be clear? You cannot mix works with grace and still have either one of them in their purity, right? What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So what Paul has done here is to explain how there is this progressive narrowing uh, because faith was the requirement, right? The progressive narrowing from uh, the larger group earlier, uh, you know, the descendants of Abraham down to the descendants of Isaac, down to, you know, descendants of Jacob. <laughs> There's a successive narrowing at each point. And uh, finally, even the nation itself, though it's all descending from one of the 12 tribes, of Jacob, even there the narrowing is down based again upon the principle of faith. So that brings us to the middle part of chapter 11, 
So let's begin. And I'd like us to read all the verses to start with here, just so we have the context well in mind. So, Lisa, you'll be first up with uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. Okay. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more of their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. Okay, very good. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, now we'll skip over to Linda. Please read verses uh, 15 through 18 of Romans 11. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were gifted, were grifted, grafted in among them, and with them partaketh of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root bear thee. Okay, thank you, Linda. And Patty, verses 19 <laughs> through 24. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. <clears throat> and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cu cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, <clears throat> let's look at uh, the meaning of this. Uh, first of all, in those first few verses there, we see an overview of the whole teaching in verses 11 through 14. And Paul's emphasis there implies that the false teachers that have come in and, and been corrupting the saints, teaching that, as we learned earlier when we looked at the uh, Thessalonian letters, um, these teachers moved around every place where there was an assembly of, of, of believers that have, had believed the grace teaching and, and tried to Judaize them to somehow yeah, convince them that uh, the church, uh, the body of Christ, was not really distinctive from Israel, or alternatively, that somehow it had supplanted or replaced it. I'm sure there was both kinds of teachings, uh, de de depending upon whether the, uh, the false teachers were themselves Judaizers, Jews, or whether they were uh, maybe Greeks, uh, had, had accepted the Greek uh, religion, religious system, and are just basically saying God now has turned it entirely away from the Jews and there will never be an emphasis on Jews and Israel again, right? So uh, what Paul is doing is laying a foundation here for how God could, according to his perfect sovereign will, set aside Israel for a time to do some unprophesied program of redemption. And then later, when that unprophesied program had come to an end, 
refocus on Israel. Okay, and and what he's saying here in these verses, uh, from verses 11 through 14, is simply that God is now blessing Gentile believers according to his riches, right? Uh, and he's doing it even with a purpose in regarding the unsaved Jew. He says, to provoke them to jealousy. He mentions that twice here, verses 11 and 14. Uh, he says, I speak to you Gentiles. I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. So basically what Paul is saying is that the way God will work is that it will, uh, the Jews, the unsaved Jews who have rejected their Messiah, will see the blessings of God flowing to Gentile believers in Jesus Christ and that that will cause them to be jealous. Now, how could that happen? Well, it's because if the blessings that had been promised according to prophecy for the Jews someday and for God's own people, his own nation, Israel, if those blessings are now being found uh, amongst the Gentiles independently of the Jews, then why wouldn't some of them be jealous? In fact, they would be if, in fact, God were opening their hearts. And so what Paul is saying is that he has a special ministry to them, uh, to the Jews. And so every city he goes to, he goes first of all in the synagogue and preaches to the Jews, this is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Uh, um, when that whole ministry is over, then nobody's going to be going to the Jews first anymore, okay? Uh, and then eventually, after we're caught up into heaven's glory, right, then uh, the evangelization of Gentile nations will occur through a saved Israel, right? That's the prophetic plan. So things are reversed today. Now, now the Jews are being evangelized by the Gentiles instead of the other way Around In the one case, it's through uh, the rising of the Gentiles and the diminishing of the Jews. In the other case, the rising of the Jews uh, and the diminishing of the Gentiles. Okay. Okay. So the central question, though, would be when does this teaching apply and what are the, uh, the implications of this? Because it would seem that the implications are vast, right? Uh, I mean, this is a major, major teaching of the Apostle Paul's here. If only the Spirit of God would give us understanding of it, you know. And I will say that this teaching concerning the olive tree only applies as long as the Jews are still being singled out as Jews. Now, that's only going to be true as long as Paul continues to go to the Jew first. Okay, and uh, when he gets to the end of the book of Acts, that's the end of it, as he himself says in Acts chapter 28, verse 28. After that point, there's no longer an applicability of, of some of the details here in the olive tree analogy. Well, let's keep going, though. Let's look at the next section where we see the whole meaning of this summarized. And... Uh, I, I would say that um, this section here is uh, where the difficulties in interpretation come, right? Because he he writes here about the casting away of God's people leading to the reconciling of the world in verse 15, and then says, well, <laughs> if that's true, what will the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Well, indeed, Israel is going to be brought from death to life, certainly spiritually someday, also physically, because most of those Jews that died with the kingdom of hope, of course, um, most Jews did die with the kingdom of hope, and they would be have to be resurrected to receive their kingdom blessing. So life from the dead is certainly a summary of that, right? Uh, and then he talks about how the root and everything that flows from it is holy, including the branches and the fruit that they produce. But 
if they don't produce fruit, right, verse 17, and are broken off, if those branches are broken off, and then he says, and you, being a wild olive tree, <laughs> were grafted in among them, then you begin to partake of the root and the, and the fatness of the olive tree because of the root, right, and the flow of the sap. All those doing maple sugaring know a lot about the flow of the sap, right? That's what brings life through the buds and so forth and ultimately uh, fruit in a tree, in a fruit tree. In this case, an olive tree. Now, the olive tree was very significant in Israel's history. And if you go back and look at the prophecies, and I would uh, not read them now, but just refer you to Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, Jeremiah 11, 16 and 17, and Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 12, you'll see that when God uh, promised millennial blessings to Israel, or even times of great blessing ultimately leading to millennial blessings, he would speak to them about the olive tree. The olive tree and olive oil were one of the greatest blessings that God promised for his people. And uh, he, he certainly promised fruitful uh, harvests and all of those things, right, that they would not have lack. But having the the uh, the oil of the olive tree available, which was used for many purposes, not only for cooking, it was used for anointing and so forth. And it was a symbol of the blessings of God being poured out abundantly on his people, according to the prophetic uh, teaching concerning the seed of the woman and how God would ultimately bring that to pass. So redemption had a physical component as well as a spiritual component. And the olive tree was the symbol of that. So every Jew knew about the olive tree promises, I'm sure, and hoped, hoped uh, that God would fulfill them in the near future. Because when Israel was set aside, right, uh, earlier, before the, uh, they were regathered into the land, you know, under the Babylonians, under the Persians, and Medes, and so forth, finally many came back and reestablished their residence there in the promised land. But uh, the land was arid. It did not produce fruit. It was not the land of milk and honey any longer, right? So they hoped for the day when God would fulfill these promises regarding the olive tree. Now, what does Paul say about it here? Something amazing. He says, <laughs> um, some of the branches, if they're broken off, they would leave room then for grafting in of branches from what? From a wild olive tree. <laughs> Well, wild olive trees do not produce olives. They, there are such. They do produce fruit. Nobody would want to eat them. They're nothing like olives, right? However, there was an ancient uh, horticultural practice. Uh, you can read about it. Uh, there, there's uh, uh, ancient documents that from Roman days that defined this uh, and how this worked, okay? But they, they, they took um, a strong branch off of um, this so-called wild olive that was not really an olive, and they grafted it into the trunk of the true olive tree that was no longer producing as it should, and this actually brought a renewed life to the root of the true olive tree, and therefore there would be fruit produced. Okay, so the one would benefit the other. This is quite amazing, right? Uh, horticulturalists know about this, right? So this is all about how um, in the natural world, uh, life may be brought out of something that is no longer producing as it should in uh, uh, this particular kind of tree, right? So what he basically says is 
this wild olive tree that, that, that isn't really a, an olive tree. In other words, it doesn't fit into the program, the prophetic program that God had given for his people uh, at all. It doesn't, it's not even on the scene, right? And yet it may be used in order to bless uh, the true olive tree, right? Okay, that's at the heart of the teaching here. Now, let's just go ahead quickly into the dispensational significance here in verses 19 through 24. Okay, now branches, he says, have been broken off. Okay, um, what that means is that God is in the process of turning away from his people. Of course, that's quite evident. We looked at that earlier and seeing how Saul was uh, martyred at the hand of the leaders of, of the Jewish nation, right? And uh, Saul was raised up to be the new apostle. His name changed to Paul. And this revelation concerning the mystery was then given to him as to how God was now working. First of all, uh, Paul was sent to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So he goes city to city, goes into the synagogues, preaches, Israel's Messiah, you must receive him or you cannot be saved, right? And those that did respond, a very few, uh, were then asked to come out uh, from the Jewish fellowship, the synagogue, and uh, be taught concerning grace. You can read about that in Acts chapter 13, 14, 15, and so forth. That was Paul's early ministry, right, during this so-called transitional period goes from Acts 13 to Acts 28. Okay, um, but but what he says here uh, concerning this is that though these branches are broken off, okay, uh, and you've been grafted in from a wild olive tree, right? Uh, so now you're receiving the blessings of God. Uh, they may also receive blessing, as he indicates here. So he says, don't be proud or puffed up, uh, thinking you have somehow accomplished something great compared to them, because it is only by faith that you stand. And so that that's uh, what, what he says here as he concludes this section here uh, in verse 24. If thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and grafted in, grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree, meaning in due time. But notice there is a warning there. It's very strong. Um, verse 22, Behold the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, those that fell away and their faith was not evident, uh, severity came upon them. They were cut off, ultimately, uh, from the blessing of God. But toward thee, he says, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Okay, so I think it's easy to see how they might have been boasting in this, thinking that somehow... Now the church, the body of Christ, supplanted and, and canceled uh, Israel as a nation, never to be, uh, of course, regathered again. In other words, the promise of God broken regarding the Jews, somehow uh, the church substituting for it. And that is not true, Paul says. He says, God forbid, okay? Uh, rather, he says, at the appropriate time, God will graft them in again. But what does he mean when he says, you may be cut off or shall be cut off, okay? Many take this verse to try to justify the teaching that uh, one may lose one's salvation just by turning away from the faith. But see, that's not what Paul's writing about. Now, this is a an analogy, okay? One of the first things I was taught in seminary was that you must never make analogies try to walk on all fours, on all fours. In other words, go down in infinite details and draw some kind of doctrine from everything that's uh, part of the analogy. 
what you have to do is take it in its context. So that's why we've looked at chapter 9 and chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11, because what what Paul is teaching is that through the elective plan of God, God successively narrows down the field to accomplish his purpose. But ultimately, ultimately, in each dispensational period, there is failure. Did the dispensation of the law fail? Absolutely. They didn't keep it and they suffered the judgment, right? What about that Pentecostal period we looked at? It failed, right? They, they, they martyred Stephen. Um, what about the kingdom? You read the prophecies regarding the kingdom. You see at the end of the kingdom, there's failure until the Lord actually returns and destroys Satan and all of his demons and all who have accepted the mark of the beast and so forth, the great majority of those living on the earth, it seems, at that time, right? So every dispensational plan ends in a failure because everyone has a test. The test under the law was, would you keep Moses' law faithfully? The test under grace is, what? (laughs) Will you receive the abundance of grace and be bold to teach the sacred secret, rightly divided. That's the test. Is that ministry failing today? Absolutely. You see certain ones uh, recovering the truth for a while, but then it disappears, right? Uh, and uh, and so uh, Paul, at the end of his uh, life, wrote his second letter to Timothy, where he makes it very clear that, uh, you know, Things were getting very, very difficult indeed, even in his day. The teaching was sort of slipping away. (laughs) Without these letters, we wouldn't have uh, much left. Now, I I want to, uh, as we conclude today, just focus on one thing, which is uh, this idea of provoking to emulation. Okay, Uh, it's the question I ask is, uh, when when does this apply? And I, what I said was as long as Paul is reaching out to uh, the Jews as Jews, right? So when he gets to the end of Acts 28, that's the end of his uh, missionary journey there in Rome, uh, he declares that they're all set aside, right, at that time. Well, there were certain things accompanying this ministry. Uh, when Paul went city, city to city, he also collected monetary gifts, and uh, why? He says, "Well, we need to. We really need to uh, uh, provide for the poor saints in Jerusalem." In other words, the saints that were saved there in that early Pentecostal period. Well, why are they poor? When remember, they've sold everything they had, given it to the poor, right? And and God had promised. Uh, through the prophets, and the Lord himself had said, you'll be cared for, right? Uh, God will take care of you. Well, why was God not taking care of them? Because God was setting aside the nation of Israel, starting in Jerusalem, see. And so Paul, during this transitional period, felt that the responsibility of the Gentile churches to provide for those poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't only those uh, physical blessings that uh, are involved here. In fact, I, uh, um, Charlie, I'd uh, like you to read in uh, chapter 15 of Romans, verses 15 and 16, and then 25 through 27, if you would, and, uh, and we'll see what Paul says there. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It has pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. 
Or if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Okay. Thank you, Charlie. Well, so much could be said about it, but suffice it to say, as Paul says right here in verse 27, that it was not only carnal things that were involved here, okay, that God had begun to pour out on these Gentile believers during this transitional period great, great blessings. Um, and they had carnal things, in this case, gold, <laughs> that which could be carried from place to place, taken to Jerusalem and so forth, right? That was the money of the day. You didn't have paper money, okay? Uh, they were being blessed when Jerusalem was expecting the blessing, right? But God had turned away and set aside Israel from the plan. Therefore, they are not receiving the promised blessings, but the Gentiles are. So that's the carnal things he's talking about here, right? That now the Gentiles have them and they have an obligation to provide them for those poor saints in Jerusalem. But notice it also mentions spiritual things. It has pleased them verily and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Okay, well, what were the spiritual things he's talking about there? Well, you could say, well, salvation, certainly, right? Uh, uh, yes, indeed, but there's more. Okay, remember, these, these other, these Jewish uh, unbelievers, as Paul goes city to city, they're seeing certain things in him and in the other, in, in the Gentile believers that are making them jealous. What are they seeing? They're seeing sign gifts and prophecy, okay? In other words, spiritual gifts, as, as uh, Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 15, right? And as we finish today, Ted, I'd like you just to read those two verses in 1 Corinthians 13, because what it says there is that these spiritual, these special blessings that Gentiles had at this time during this transition period would be passing away. They were, in fact, already passing away because they were only applicable at that time to make Jews jealous. That was the whole point of it. Okay, Ted, would you please read verses 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians 13. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. Thank you, Ted. Okay. Well, it's often said the perfect thing mentioned here is the Lord when he returns. In other words, <laughs> that uh, these special miraculous gifts are given out until uh, the um, second coming of Christ. That's not what he's writing about here at all. So he's, he's writing about sign gifts and, and, and prophetic gifts. The sign gifts were things like healing, uh, speaking in languages that were unle unlearned and, and this sort of thing, right? The prophecy gifts were to know uh, that which had not yet been written uh, in the Word of God, right? To know. In fact, even to be able to prophesy concerning future events, right? And those special gifts were being given out not only to the Apostle Paul, but to believers, right? Especially in Corinth. Remember, Corinth, the, that church was founded when Paul went into the synagogue, and the ruler of the synagogue was saved and came out, and there were a number of Jews that came out with him. And they then met in the house adjoining <laughs> the synagogue. You remember that, right? And God gave these special sign gifts there to uh, cause the J unbelieving Jews to be uh, jealous. So, this is really the, the heart of the teaching here. Paul's going city to city and breaking off the branches of the olive tree. Uh, in other words, uh, God is no longer going to be reaching out to these Jews as Jews, right? And finally he gets to Rome, and that's the final statement. So finally there's an exhortation giving here, given here, and Paul strongly uh, exhorts all of us to consider that, yes, uh, 
we do stand by faith, and so we should not uh, exalt ourselves over unbelieving Israel, right? But as actually many believers have down through the centuries, they should not do it, he said, because ultimately this period will end and we'll be caught up in the heaven's glory and then God will return his focus to his people. Even our dispensation will perhaps come to an end with very few still holding to the truth of the word of God rightly divided. And as we finish today, I'll just read uh, the verses we'll look at next time, uh, Lord willing, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and so then all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So you see he finishes the section with, again, a reference to the rapture, which is at the t point in time when the last Gentile comes in to the body of Christ. At that point, there'll be no longer a reason for the church, the body of Christ, to be here in this world, or so it seems, <laughs> right? The time will have come to refocus on God's people. Israel and the tribulation period will begin. Well, that's uh, my conviction. That's my understanding. Okay. Praise the Lord. Enjoy all uh, the riches of God's grace and hope to be with you again next time. Praise the Lord that we could gather today. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for gathering us today and for the blessings of your word. And as we take it very carefully and slowly and, and wait on you to give us understanding and, uh, and seek not to jump to conclusions, but to compare scripture with scripture to understand what's actually written. Uh, Father, we know our blindnesses remain. They still need to be lifted or we can't comprehend that which has been written. But, Father, we believe the scripture is inspired and you have preserved it for us. And uh, translations are never perfect, but, uh, but you are able to teach your people nevertheless. So, Father, give us understanding, I pray of the riches of your grace, and may we be effective in sharing that uh, with those both who are still lost and those that are saved, Father, that you might be honored and glorified, and that what you are doing today might might be very well known and, uh, and respected by all. And Father, please... Uh, Bless us and those that are suffering greatly. May they be comforted. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.